0: The gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Skeptic's Guide to American History get
1: 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com/gist. <laughs> It's Wednesday, October 21st, 2014 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Have you seen these pictures of Renee Zellweger? She's unrecognizable. Those rosy apple cheeks have now been flattened into, like, apple crepes or something. The glow of youth replaced by a flattened, prairie-like visage. It's the kind of plastic surgery—yeah, I'm going to go ahead and assert plastic surgery— that is so pronounced— that it inspires think pieces, right? All over Beverly Hills, former ingenues are like, I'd like the plastic surgery. Well, how extreme? Okay, pretty, pretty extreme. I'd like to look good, but no think pieces. But we've had the think pieces. So it's interesting to look at Renee Zellweger. We can't stop looking at her. But what I want to do, because this is an audio format, I want to listen to her because that changed as well, and it's not being noted. Okay, so first let me play a clip Definitely the most famous thing she ever said in film. Here it is, Jerry Maguire, you know what it is. You had me at hello. But this clip, this next clip, is in a movie. They haven't titled it yet. It's in the can. Some clips have leaked online. And I think she sounds a lot different. All right, let's listen to that clip.
0: I make you a counterproposal. I'll agree to your terms if, if, in addition to yourself, You hand over to me all data and material regarding the project called Genesis. Genesis, what's that? Don't insult my intelligence, Kirk.
1: All right, and I should also identify that second voice you heard there. That was Meg Ryan. All right, but that's her playing a role. Maybe she's doing a character. Let's hear the real Renee speaking in her real voice when she won the Oscar. I am overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed. Thank you. And now here's her at a recent speech uh, just talking off the cuff. Uh, I I am the only person on the stage who actually has real experience in the energy industry. Uh, I ran a natural gas uh, exploration and production company. So, yeah, can you see it's just like a subtle, a subtle difference. Actually, that last voice was Greg Orman. He's uh, running for. Senate in Kansas. And we did note he has a little bit of the old man voice. I wonder how that plays with the voter. He is running against Pat Roberts, who definitely, as an old man, has the old man voice. But I think old man voice is not examined enough. On the show today, in the spiel, our differences, what we watch to foment our divisions. And Adam Davidson will bring the real truth about real wages But first, controversy roiling the world of opera. I'm going to sidestep that for a moment and talk posture. So right now, The Met, Metropolitan Opera, is staging the death of Klinghoffer, and it couldn't be more controversial. We're going to put aside for a moment, because I'm going to visit this in future episodes. We're going to put aside the content and the controversy and ask a question that I've been wondering about. In it, Leon Klinghoffer is, of course, based on the real Leon Klinghoffer, was in a wheelchair. And even though the character stands up and delivers arias at times, he does a lot of singing from his wheelchair, and that just seems hard to me. I know that Dai Valkyrie, she sings from her knees, but it seems hard to me to sing opera from a seated position. So I wanted to, in a round of one question, one question only, it's Anita rochvelashvili who will be Carmen at the Met performance tomorrow, performance October 28th. She switches off with uh, another singer. It's a tough role. But she'll also be in the HD, the theater version of the movie theater version of Carmen. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for uh, coming on. (laughs) And so this is my question to you, Anita. How hard is it to sing opera from the seated position? Uh,
0: Singing is all about reading and using your, your diaphragm. And your legs also, which is really important in singing, so it's hard it's a really a technical complication, but you can absolutely do that uh, you just need to practice that uh, a lot, and then you can you can do that definitely uh I have to say for me, singing in different positions is no different actually because I'm used to it because I'm doing a lot of different uh, Carmen uh, productions and uh, they're always hard physically. So the only thing at the end that you need is just to be okay with a lot of movement on stage.
1: Anita Rochveli-Shivili, you are a true diva and I say that in the best way. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Thank you, thank you, and bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: The desire to learn doesn't stop after college. Good, right? I mean, if you graduated college in 78, you'd never be able to Google if that were the case. Well, that's also the motivation behind the great courses. What are the great courses? They're great courses, like engaging video and audio lectures from top professors, experts in their field, like the Skeptic's Guide to American History. I watched and listen to Professor Mark Stoller, actual scholar, guy reminds me of uh, Bernie Sanders from Vermont. I think he's like a New Englander with a New York accent. Anyway, totally turned me around on Woodrow Wilson. Went into it thinking one thing about Woodrow Wilson. A lot of my Woodrow Wilson, not assumptions, let's say received knowledge, needed correcting. Professor Mark Stoller was there. I was walking around with one set of ideas about Wilson. Got a totally different set of ideas about Wilson coming out. Now, if you're the kind of person for whom that seems appealing to change your Opinion on Woodrow Wilson, The Great Courses is for you. They have over 500 courses on topics like history, science, photography, and more. You could watch or listen. They have DVDs, they have CDs, there are no exams, and The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order The Skeptic's Guide to American History, that's the Woodrow Wilson course I was talking about, and get 80% off the original price, only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. Earlier this month, President Obama delivered his most notable economic address in quite some time. It touted his achievements like bringing unemployment down to 6%, for instance, but it also talked, if a bit vaguely, about what his presidency has failed to do, raise the wages actually paid to workers. Job growth could be so much faster, and wages could be going up faster if we made some better decisions going forward with the help of Congress. So our task now is to harness the momentum that is real, that does exist, and make sure that we accelerate that momentum, that the economy grows and jobs grow and wages grow. That's our challenge. When the typical family isn't bringing home any more than it did in 1997, then that means it's harder for middle-class Americans to climb the ladder of success. Well, what about real wages? It does seem to be an excellent measure of the country's health, better even than unemployment. I mean, why should the most important economic statistic be the small, usually single-digit percent of people that have no work at all? Wouldn't it be better to discuss the averages of what all workers are actually paid? Real wages, by the way, are flat. They haven't improved in a decade, and that hasn't been true in about 80 years. So joining me now is the master explainer of the macroeconomic Adam Davidson. Adam is the founder of NPR's Planet Money. One time, Earthwhile host. Earthwhile host. It's been a while. I've been on book leave. A while. Earthwhile for a while. Okay. So, Adam, Obama gives a speech that uh, I referenced, and Obama talks about his accomplishments, 6% unemployment, definitely better than 8%. We could all poke holes. Who's not looking for work? We've had that discussion here. And then there's the question of, you know, should he get credit? I mean, you should get some credit, right? Oh, no. I think the president
0: gets some credit. I mean, okay. his, you know, I think Fine. most economists, not all economists, yes. would say his stimulus moved that
1: number down a bit. Um, yes. Yeah. So on an earlier show, I was talking about actually quoted Candy Crowley as saying the three things that Americans care about when they look at the economy seems to be the things that really affect them, unemployment, gas prices, housing prices. in The last couple of years, those have all trended for the better for the American consumer. Someone hit me up on Twitter and said, yeah, but it's all real wages and real wages has gone nowhere. And that's really how much people make. And it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense to look at that more than to look at unemployment. Like why should the fact that a few people don't have jobs. Why should that define our economy as opposed to how much money most people really are making? I mean, I guess that's why people have invented this idea uh, of real wages, right? As right. Re- so
0: first of all, let's just define
1: real. Yes. So you hear this real wages. All that means is inflation adjusted. Okay. That's all that means. But are they really good at tracking what the real wages number is? When they say these are the real wages, are they Right. I mean I I don't believe any economic yeah. statistic is right but in as, some simple as good in, as in the some other simple economic way. statistics. I
0: I think that there's a lot of judgment that goes into measuring wages and there's a lot of judgment that goes into measuring inflation and inflation adjustment. And so it it's very possible for very smart, well meaning people with lots of computer firepower to come up with very different numbers and both have a lot of accuracy. One thing you would look for is consistency over time. So you know, in the U.S., we 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 try and make changes not that often to the fundamental metrics. We do, though. We do yes. make changes. So one thing we've done is um, in the 90s, they reclassified a lot of the jobs. So the numbers are better than not having the numbers, but the numbers are not... You know, it, it's very hard to to come up with anything meaningful. The nature of employment has changed so much. The hours people work, the way they're paid... Fringe benefits. healthcare has become a huge part of our overall payment. So, no, we, we have information, but we're not great on it.
1: Right. Now, one um, criticism of using real wages as a very important measure of the economy is, well, who cares how much money you have? It's what that money can buy. And since that changes all the time, what do real wages really tell us? the real part of real wages, the
0: inflation adjusted, Um, what that's supposed to mean is that there's a basket of goods, of consumer goods, that the government is tracking in an ongoing way to figure out how much that basket costs. And it's pretty big. It's not just stuff that would fit in a supermarket basket. I think it's, I want to say it's like 50,000 items, something like that, but it's shirts and bread and milk and other things. And they literally send people out. They have you know, government employees who have like a iPad type device and they're told, go to this store and ask for a blue cotton button down long sleeve shirt made of, you know, no more than 80 percent cotton, but no less than 60 percent cotton, something like that. And then they write down that shirt cost thirty eight dollars and fifty seven cents. And there's lots of issues there because. If an iPhone today costs $400 and an iPhone 10 years ago cost $400, it's not the same iPhone. So, right. it, what does that tell us? And then, if we're comparing that to the 1970s, what does that tell us? There's a lot of judgment calls that need to be made. But that real part, the inflation adjusted part, is supposed to tell you how much people are able to consume. I'd say generally, like more conservative people, more Republican leading. Economists, as a general rule, will argue that it's undercounting quality of goods. So, the standard left of center argument these days is real wages are flat mm-hmm. or falling mm-hmm. for the majority of Americans. A market, pro market, more Republican, more conservative economist would respond. That's only true because of how they calculate the the real, the inflation adjusted. In actual fact, if you go to somebody, you know, a family four making $20,000 a year today, they have an air conditioner, which they wouldn't have had in the 70s. They have a nice TV, which they wouldn't have had. They Probably the kids have smartphones. They wouldn't have had anything like that. So their life is better, even if in the way the government counts inflation, they're not actually financially better off.
1: Well, that's true. This might be a diversion, but I do have to say, yeah, electronic goods are getting cheaper, but education ain't and healthcare ain't. And that's a huge part of the family's pocketbook and expenses. So these are issues that are really crucial. So one thing we know, for example,
0: is the basket of goods that senior citizens buy is very different from the basket of goods that younger people with children buy. There's also sort of an urban basket versus a rural basket. You know, you and I pay a lot more for housing and we might not own our homes, but we probably pay a lot less in gas than someone in a more rural area than New York City. So every single element of this is debated. But as one economist, Larry Katz at at Harvard, who's probably one of the deans of, of this topic, said to me once, at no point in American history was anyone even arguing whether or not real wages are flat. That has never come up because it was so obvious that wages were growing rapidly generation after generation. And we're now in a period of time where maybe you can make an argument that real wages are, are growing, but that it's a pretty weak argument because yeah. they're not growing anywhere near right. at the rate that they It used to be did.
1: easier to make the argument that real wages are growing when they were growing as opposed to when you had to say, look, your calculator doesn't cost $100 anymore.
0: Right. So there's just this one idea that I've always found... Like kind of surprising, which is if you look at the Keynesian model for why economies can fall into what we're in now, which is a extended period of sluggishness, because in the old economic models, it doesn't make any sense. You know, there's a slowdown, prices fall, wages fall, and they keep falling until they hit the point where people are like, oh, okay, that's worth it. I'll hire Mm -hmm. that guy or I'll buy that product. But there are periods where they don't adjust, and so there's been a lot of study. Why don't they adjust? Why do we get into the, like the Great Depression or the Great Recession? Why do we get into these prolonged periods of slow growth? It actually has to do with wages, and it has to do with the reluctance of people to accept a lower wage, and that's just a psychological fact that people are not like the price of oil or the price of potato chips or whatever, where if there's less demand, the price yeah. falls until it hits the point of demand. Right. If I made a hundred grand last year and my services are 10% less in demand this year, yeah. I'm just not likely to take the $90,000
1: job. Right. I'm, uh, uh, I'll wait potato, for a $100,000 job. Potato chips never cut a number one single, as Johnny Paycheck did, with take this job and shove it. Exactly. Potato chips <laughs> exactly. cannot do that. So that's called the stickiness effect. Mm. And, and it's sort of the
0: problem that needs to be overcome. And so you use sort of the monetary illusion to get over it. One of the ways you get over that is you actually promote inflation
1: uh, by loose monetary policy so that- Oh, yeah. The salary is just as good. It's like, yeah, but your money's not going as far. But yeah, look, it's an 8% Yeah, yeah. That goes 2% as far, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Do you think, therefore, it's a matter of time before we're going to see wage growth, middle class, median wage growth? Or do you think, as you've said on this program before, you know, we're in a different period. The idea of a uh, unskilled, uncollege educated laborer making a good middle class wage for a family might be gone. What do you think? So we're talking about two different reasons why life is harder for, let's
0: call it 80 percent of Americans. They're going to be making less money. They might have to work harder to make less money. And it's we can't predict the future, but we think that's going to continue. Um, so So one argument is called the structural argument, which means the structure of our economy has changed. We used to be able to make a lot of money with relatively low skilled manufacturing jobs and selling those those goods abroad and selling those goods domestically also. And those goods needed to be made by people willing to work hard, but who didn't need any particularly special skill. And now, because of computer technology replacing workers and because of trade replacing workers, we just don't need as many people. We certainly don't need as many unskilled people. That's a very pessimistic story. It's basically, you know, and some economists talk about like, the best we can hope for is the children or the grandchildren of the unskilled will acquire enough skill over the course of their lives to be valuable. So there's a very dark story there. Structural equals pretty dark. That's Um, structure. That's That's a structuralist. Right. So the other one would be more of a cyclical argument, which is just we're in a slowdown. We're just in a really deep slowdown, a deep recession. And that one is a classic Keynesian story that what we need is more stimulus, that this is overblown, that there's lots and lots of workers. There would be people who would need their services. There's just not enough spending going on. And this is just Basically, this gets into the whole Keynesian story, the paradox of thrift, the idea that when times are tough, people hold on to their money, they hoard it. That's individually rational, but as a group, that makes us all worse off. And so we need someone to step in, i.e. the government, and push things forward, to spread things. Um, All right. So
1: my question to you is, who do you think has the better case?
0: Well, I think that what is likely happening by now is, it has a fancy term, hysteresis,
1: but it's basically... So when you can't stop peeing because you watch a lot of history on the A&E channel? No, I'm getting that wrong. You get, you're getting that total. That's a damn, ridiculous
0: damn guess. Why would I be saying that? That okay. makes no sense that well, I would bring that up. Now, even but if that you, was the, a word. But, okay. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. anyway yeah. So hysteresis tells us that the cyclical becomes structural. So in other words, if you are laid off and you're unemployed for several years you become structurally unemployed, Mm. even if you weren't before. That if you're a 28-year-old construction worker and you're unemployed till you're 34, we know from lots of data that your life never returns to that previous state, and you're basically permanently underemployed. And it seems fairly clear that that's happening for many Americans. Here's how I answer that question, by the way. Who am I talking to? Mm -hmm. If I'm sitting with Janet Yellen, the chair of the Fed, who I've never sat with, if I'm sitting with President Obama, I'm, I've never sat with, I'm probably going to talk a lot about the cyclical. I'm going to talk a lot about this is a tough time right now. Here are things that can happen at the macro level. If I'm talking to my nephew or my cousin, who's like, should I stay in college? What kind of job I've should I like about? That was a good one. Yeah. yeah. Then I'm And you were ta- like,
1: go to college, and he didn't listen to And you. he didn't yeah. listen. Yeah.
0: And he's actually, weirdly enough, doing well. But <laughs> for an individual, I don't know if these macroeconomic questions apply. Definitely to be more competitive, you want to have competitive skills. You want to, and that makes sense, whatever the Fed and the president and, are doing, whatever is happening macroeconomically. So I don't know that this is a debate that needs to happen on the personal level.
1: But I, th- I personally want to thank you for being here and engaging in this debate with me today. Thank you, Mike. Adam Davidson is the founding producer of NPR's Planet Money, He's a writer, a thinker, and a gentleman. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, broadcasting to a narrow slice. So Pew is an interesting study on siloing in American life, you know, polarization, people getting their news from sources that enforce those people's worldviews and only talking to like-minded folk. A few years ago, we were supposed to be worried that we were all bowling alone, right? This is the Robert Putnam description of the lack of civic engagement. Bowling Alone first published in 1995. So it's a 20-year-old essay. One tip-off to that, that it talked about bowling. Does anyone? Now it would be like playing Halo alone or something. Okay, so... That was the old idea, that we weren't engaged in public life or that we weren't engaged with each other. Now the idea is that it's all self-selecting. We're only engaging with like-minded folk. So it's not that we're bowling alone, but it's that we're hunting together or in improv groups together. But our improv group will only find themselves in a rural setting holding guns and wearing camouflage if someone yells out duck blind during the suggestion portion of the show. Yes, and. There's a good deal of research to suggest that niche media is both a reaction to and springs forth from the ideological silos that Pew has been studying. They've been teasing out over a year-long project. It's excellent. One of their last studies showed that the median conservative American, self-identified, has moved pretty far to the right, and the median self-identified liberal has moved to the left. And it wasn't always this way. When they measured this in 1994, that median liberal or conservative looked one way, looked a little bit center-left, center-right. Then in 2004, looked pretty much the same as 2004, but now in 2014, there has been this big shift Now, I just want to acknowledge that having strong political passions does actually comport with a lot of things that we think of as civically good. Higher turnout, the more you care, even the more ideologically to one side or the other you are, you're much more likely to get out and vote. Knowing more about the news, the more ideological you are, the more likely it is you'll give correct answers to current events, quizzes. The new study, the big takeaway, the big headline is this, that liberals watch a lot of and consume a lot of different sources, the networks, the New York Times, NPR, PBS, conservatives like Fox. That's what they like, that's what they watch. So the flattering way of putting this, too flattering to liberals is that ah, liberals are eclectic. they pick and choose. Look at all the sources they consult. I think the more realistic way of putting that is broadcast media is dominated by a liberal worldview, and Fox is there to address that to correct it. Fox itself knows that it's created for this very reason. Interestingly, when I went to conservative media to see how they were covering the Pew poll. They glommed onto this one finding, and the finding was that liberals are more likely than conservatives to defriend or block someone on Facebook if that person expresses uh, political leanings differing from their own. So here's how the website Hot Air covered that. The ostensible takeaway from this Pew megapoll is that left and right wing partisans are alarmingly self segregating in their media consumption, leading to bitterness, suspicion, and political paralysis. The actual takeaway? Liberals are jerks. Jerks, I say. Okay, that's kind of tongue in cheek, but the Washington Times just put this in a straightforward way. Liberals are more likely than conservatives to dump a friend over politics. I was thinking about that. Is it true? Why is it true? It's only slightly true, but it does seem to be true. First of all, I wanna say this. I think it's smart to block a friend, I don't know, over politics, not over slight disagreements, but we all have that nutter in our feed, be it uh, Obama doesn't have the right birth certificate, or be it some anti-vax thing. And yeah, let's block the guy. And I have this theory that people who are so outside your worldview, offensively outside, and the people that you block on Facebook are the ones you really can't take. Because Pew did show that we encounter friends with different views all the time. They weren't showing that liberals or conservatives block everyone, but the blocked person has to be the person expressing the most extreme view. And maybe it's that Common conservative views might see more extreme to liberals than the other way around. I I mean, I don't know. But it seems like a lot of tropes of conservatism, like gay people are going to hell, or Obama was born in Kenya, maybe this would strike a liberal as something they don't want to even have to see. Whereas a common liberal worldview, like bring back our girls, or Coney must be stopped, or let me play this clip from Elizabeth Warren, maybe that's not something that a conservative just couldn't live without. Here's another experiment, a thought experiment I did about this. Let's take Rachel Maddow and Rush Limbaugh. Is it more likely that Rush Limbaugh and his pals would object to Rachel Maddow popping over the house and like chilling out at a party, or Rachel Maddow and her pals would just not be able to take Rush Limbaugh? I mean, maybe it's the cigar smoke, but I think Rachel Maddow, the liberal, is more likely to block Rush Limbaugh, the conservative, than the other way around. By the way, if this ever happened in real life, just like we will exchange party invites, that would be great. That would be great for America. The other thing about the poll that I got really into was trust. Who's the most trusted? CNN claims to be the most trusted name in news. Yeah, 54% of uh, respondents say they trust CNN. However, 20% say they mistrust CNN. So it's only a net trust of 34%. That's not very impressive. When you look at the trust level sorted by ideological group, fascinating stuff shows up. The Economist has the highest overall trust level, and it's almost across the board. They're trusted by the consistently liberal, the mostly liberal, the mixed, the mostly conservative, and the consistently conservative are a little mixed on The Economist. The only publication that is trusted, more trusted than distrusted, by every ideological group is the Wall Street Journal, so there's no one who says they distrust the Wall Street Journal more than they trust the Wall Street Journal. But it is not the most trusted. People overall say they trust The Economist, BBC, NPR, and PBS more. Where Slate in this, trusted by the mostly liberal, mistrusted by the mostly conservative. The conservative equivalent of Slate is Breitbart that has the exact mirror image of Slate. So does the Drudge Report. So does that site, The Blaze. This dishearten me a little bit. I'd like to be about as equally trusted as mistrusted by conservatives or mostly conservative people, but I understand it. And maybe someone working for the blaze is upset that even mostly liberal people don't at least trust it to the same degree as they mistrust it. The survey leaves a few questions in my mind, like who are the 8% of liberals who don't distrust Sean Hannity? Who are the 3% of conservatives who trust Al Jazeera America? But there's one last finding in this Pew study that I think can unite us all. The conservatives, the mostly conservatives, even the liberals who kind of trust Sean Hannity. And it's this. Across the ideological spectrum, including the mixed, there was uniform mistrust of BuzzFeed. Take that, Cat Videos. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is unrecognizable from that 80s crime fighting, trench coat wearing dog she came to be known for. To look at Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast today, you'd never know that he once brought pride to all the caucuses when he meddled as a member of Georgia's beach volleyball team. Joel Meyer is Slate's managing producer of podcasts. You know him as wild rock DJ Dr. Johnny Meyer. But you know, he'll do the catchphrase, but just think about it from his point of view. Being asked to do it like 40, 50 times a day, it just gets old. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. You could get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We're on yo. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I brush by that. I blow by that. I have a goal. I'd like to add a thousand. Facebook followers, Facebook likers. I do a lot of interaction on Facebook. We post videos that maybe in a day or two we'll talk about. So if you wanna be read in on the gist, Facebook is the way to go. I'm listing all these other forms of social media in case you're not on Facebook, that's cool. But Facebook is the one we wanna recommend as a place to have a community and to have discussion. Or just email us at thegistatslate.com. So, you know, I always envisioned myself as more of an R&B artist, but I did have this great track. It was an upbeat East Coast jam, and of course it went to number one. But then all the subsequent songs, they weren't hip-hop, right? They were more R&B. But still, in my concerts all the time, people were always yelling for Motown Philly, Motown Philly. So I guess I could just say that people changed, right? And I'm glad that I escaped that platinum-gilded success and traded it all in for this podcast platform. As with Cooley High Harmony and all the rest, I can say to you, thanks for listening. I'm Dan Kois.
0: And I'm Allison Benedict.
1: On this week's Mom and Dad are Fighting, we're talking to the New York Times personal finance columnist Ron Lieber about kids and allowances.
0: Plus, the new fantasy land at Disney World triumphs and fails and a Mommy Wars lightning round.
1: Find us on the Slate podcast feed or search for
0: Mom and Dad are Fighting on iTunes.